0: Welcome to Raising OKC Kids, Conversations with Metro Family in Oklahoma City. I'm Erin Page, and today I am joined by Farah Antoine Mayberry, local mom of five, occupational therapist, founder and owner of Epiphany Birth Services, international board certified lactation consultant, and founder of the nonprofit For The Village, which is committed to enhancing birth outcomes for mothers and babies in the black community. Welcome Farah. Thanks so much for being here.
1: Thank you so much. I'm glad to be here today.
0: I'm glad to have you. So Farah, you have a long history of service in the healthcare industry. How did your experiences professionally and as a mom inspire you to start for the village in 2020?
1: Yeah. Um, and it definitely was a journey that brought me to this nonprofit. Um, I worked as an occupational therapist. I graduated in 2003 and have worked in different settings. Uh, And it's an incredible profession to to be able to serve uh, clients and patients in lots of different um, areas. Uh, But one of my passions was really working in the NICU uh, with babies who were born with uh, medical complications. Uh, And so I just really fell in love with the resilience of these tiny fighters uh, and really with the families that were doing the best that they could to care for these babies. Uh, And of course the staff that was working really hard to provide their gifts and their services. Um, So I worked as an OT, worked in the NICU, was working still with adults. And when we started having kids, um, my husband and I, we we always uh, have loved children tremendously. And so, For me, it really was the NICU that kind of woke me up where I felt like, wow, we were so excited when we were pregnant the first time we were having twins so we were you know doubly excited and we did all the things we took all the classes we went to the breastfeeding classes and the childbirth education classes and at the time the hospital where we took our classes um, did their classes in a three or four part series so my recollection of that time period for us is we did a lot of education uh, in preparation when I went to work in the NICU I just felt like We never talked about this we never talked about what happens if your baby has some kind of complication and you have to go to the NICU and so my heart really went out to those families who experienced it and who were terrified, Uh, and I felt like I had a lot of empathy for them, Uh, and for the nurses who were so excellent at their skills as NICU nurses, sometimes I would find that the nurses did not necessarily understand how to connect with these parents, right? For example, some families were there all the time with the babies, which is really ideal, Uh, but sometimes parents couldn't be there with babies, and I would hear things. I would hear critical things from some of the nurses, is definitely not all of the nurses about, you know, mom or dad not being present. Uh, But then learning that, so this, this mom lives like an hour and a half away, her baby was born at 28 weeks, and she has to make the difficult decision to go back to work. So that when her baby comes back in a few months, she actually has some paid time off. So just wanting to form a bridge with like, you know, the amount of support that this parent was needing. Uh, So again, I grew kind of close to connecting with families in that environment. Um, And then when we had our fifth fifth child, um, my goal was to stay home with him for as long as I can afford to. Uh, And during that time, I was asked to help facilitate a breastfeeding support group, which I thought, that's great. I can bring my baby with me. Uh, and it was then that I was really exposed to how breastfeeding uh, was a, uh, an intervention that so many families were struggling with. Um, I felt like we were really blessed. We didn't really have that many issues when it came to breastfeeding. And my goal with breastfeeding was nothing noble. It was free. And so that's what we were going to do. And, and so I just kind of was like, yeah, like that's the route, especially the first time with twins. Um, but in these breastfeeding support groups, I realized that, wow, a lot of these parents aren't being encouraged to go to breastfeeding support groups, aren't getting prenatal help. And so the postpartum help, it's, it's kind of hard to have your baby handed to you and then kind of like with the message, all right, figure it out. It's natural. Do it. Uh, so I felt really bad because I was like, yeah, not everybody wants to go to all the classes like we we did. Um, but if if you're not as enthusiastic to go, hopefully there's somebody encouraging you to go. And I found that a lot of moms weren't getting that. Moms and dads weren't getting that. So I became a certified lactation counselor and was able to see clients on an individual basis and felt like, you know, I can give them as much support as possible. Uh, And then the idea of becoming a doula became appealing to me because as a doula, you form relationships with your birthing clients while they're still pregnant and then uh, you, you're there with them at birth, and then you're there to support them postpartum. So at first, lactation drove me down that path because I thought, hey, we can talk about breastfeeding so that they can feel more confident and they can know that certain things are just normal and they'll be able to decipher normal from like, yeah, this is a big problem, we need to look into this more. So lactation really drove me into doing even more birth work. Um, but then what I found was, even in terms of childbirth education, there was so much, there is so much that our parents are lacking, that you know, the, the hospital setting can be a really scary place in America with the way we do birth and the way we treat birth. Um, I don't think that the message that is communicated is how normal so much of it is. I think it very much feels like a you're a patient. And uh, and if you're not coming into that birth space well well, well educated and well supported, uh, it's just easy to get snowballed into a number of interventions that you don't have a full understanding of uh, in the nurse's defense. Uh, if you know, nurses in labor and delivery, they don't necess- they don't have the time to teach you all the things that would be helpful for couples to know when they enter that birth space. So I realized that man, we really need to, prioritize educating people prior to them. Like how can we possibly expect them to feel empowered in a birth space if we haven't encouraged them uh, to to be well-educated about what to expect? Um, And so so on top of that, uh, I uh, was learning more about statistics as it affects the Black community, uh, learning about the fact that uh, infant mortality or uh, the death of a child before they reach their first birthday and maternal mortality or the death of a woman because of pregnancy, uh, birth or postpartum related issues is, uh, is so much higher in the black community. Black babies are dying two to three times more frequently than, uh, than white babies and black moms are dying three to four times more frequently uh, than white moms and how, how astounding that was to me um during that journey and as I was kind of trying to process that information and figure out what I'm supposed to do with it um, I was asked to train to become a midwife's assistant Uh, and so I did that and so you know right now I work as a doula and as a midwife's assistant uh and the midwife's assistant part um so I, I I assist four different midwives uh who are helping moms who are having babies out out of the hospital. So I get to see what birth looks like in different environments. When you have a very medical environment where sometimes that's necessary. uh, And then, and when you have an environment like person's home or birthing center, it gives me an even greater appreciation of what normal looks like and how to help a couple feel confident about what that that birthing person's body can actually do. Um, And all of that together helped me to to sort of recognize what my goal was and what I was supposed to do uh, with forming this nonprofit. Um, This nonprofit uh, called For the Village where we are developing birth workers to serve the Black community. We're really developing Black birth workers to serve the Black community based on research that tells us that that works. Research that tells us that when a provider, a Black provider is serving a Black uh, family, or Black baby especially, that that baby is more likely to thrive and survive. Uh, and then uh, research that tells us that interventions like lactation childbirth education, and doula uh, services helps to improve outcomes when it comes to birthing persons. Um, so we're incorporating all of that uh, into our algorithm and um, trying to make a difference uh, here in Oklahoma.
0: I love that you've talked us through your journey, because I think so often it's, you um, it's hard, it's hard for us to be patient, um, to find maybe what our purpose is in life, especially as we're starting out this new year. And I think it's so helpful to really, for each of us to kind of think through what our journey has been. Um, and that sometimes it takes a while to get to exactly what it is meant to do. Um, And I resonate so much, Vera, with so much of what you're saying about um, my husband and I were the same. We went to all the classes, we pursued so many educational opportunities, and we were still incredibly underprepared for, even with amazing medical professionals around us. Um, And when I look back on, especially our first child's birth, how much we could have benefited from both some pre and postpartum support, like exactly what you're talking about. Um, so this is, I, I, I'm very passionate about the work that you do too, because I know how much it would have helped me. And um, I just, I feel so strongly that other other women and families um, should know about what all those options are out Absolutely. there. Absolutely. Um, I want to reiterate some of the statistics that you mentioned, because I feel like it's really important for us to hear those more than once. Statistics and research tell us unequivocally that Black moms and babies are more likely to die than white moms and babies. And like you mentioned, in the US, a Black baby is two to three times more likely to die before reaching their first birthday. And a Black woman is three to four times more likely to die due to pregnancy or labor complications. Will you help us understand how systemic racism continues to impact our healthcare industry today?
1: Yeah. Um, you know, when you're looking at those types of statistics, it's smart to look at well, what are the, these diagnoses, the, these diagnoses that are causing uh, these outcomes? And we see things like with babies. Uh, prematurity, or with mom's hypertension. Uh, And and of course, a lot of people like to stick to that and think about, well, what does race have to do with all of that? Um, Research shows us that uh, there are stereotypes that exist uh, that when uh, a Black patient, for example, is asking for pain medicine, uh, not to be as quick to provide that pain medicine because, because they're more likely to be a drug seeker. And so maybe they're just trying to get high. So uh, it's, it's more likely for a black patient than to, be, uh, to, to not be respected and for, and for health professionals not to believe them. Um, so those are some of the stereotypes to, to kind of think about as examples when you're trying to truly understand how uh, racial bias plays a part in these statistics, because it really doesn't make that much sense, right? For individuals who are thinking, okay, well, black babies are more likely to die, white moms are more likely to die, somebody has to have the, you know, the higher death rate, like some the numbers have to be different among different races, it's not gonna be exactly the same. But when you're looking at a state like Oklahoma, for example, where Oklahoma is over 70% white, and is about, uh, where are we? Like maybe 10% Black. I feel like the last number I saw was 7.8 and then I heard 14%. So even if we were 14% Black in in Oklahoma and and over 70% of individuals in Oklahoma are white, it doesn't make sense for Black babies to be dying two to three times more frequently and for Black women to be dying three to four times more frequently. You have to look at what's going on, what policies are in place, what practices are in place, and who are the individuals creating these practices. Um, I use a story that if you've heard me speak You've 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 heard it several times, and I'm working on a different story. I'm working on a different example, and I think 2022 will be the year that that I find a different example of what I think really helps to explain um, uh, racial bias in the healthcare system. Um, because as a health professional, I I do feel like it's it's important to bring numbers, and I haven't really presented numbers, but I'll present you with story, a story of a woman whose name is Melba Beals, uh, who was born during the time of um, segregation in Arkansas. Um, And in one of her books, she talks about um, her mother's birth story of her. So uh, Melba's mom was a short woman and Melba's father was a really tall man. And so Melba's mom was carrying in a way that um, sort of alarmed her grandmother. Her grandmother um, begged this white hospital to accept her um, as as a patient to deliver and give birth there. She felt like she would need some extra care that the Black community did not have. Um, And the hospital rejected her several times but finally said yes. Uh, with certain conditions. The conditions were that Melba's mom would have to give birth by the end of the week, uh, that the only individuals that could come to the hospital would be Melba's grandmother and, and parents, uh, and that no uh, that they'd have to come around to the back of the hospital uh, to enter, and that no birth certificate would be provided. Uh, so all of those conditions were met, and uh, Melba's mom had a pretty difficult uh, labor. Her labor it, it included the use of forceps. And for those who aren't familiar with forceps, forceps are like metal tongs that are used to guide. They're kind of placed on the baby's temples, used to help guide the baby out of the mom during labor while she's pushing. Um, and uh, no pain medicine was provided to Melba during this, uh, during this labor. And um, the forceps left an open wound on Melba's forehead. Uh, her postpartum, so Melba's mom's postpartum recovery happened in a janitor's closet. Uh, And uh, Melba had some complications. She was crying. She had a really high fever. And when the grandmother would go to the nurse's station to ask for help, it was communicated to her that you're not even supposed to be here. Like, you're lucky. That you're even here. We're not spending anything else on you, our resources, our time, our energy. And so, you know, you have Melba crying with this high temperature, her parents trying to figure out what to do, her grandmother trying to figure out what to do. And it was a Black janitor that overheard them uh, who, who asked about um, Epsom salt. And they were kind of like, what? And he said, yeah, I overheard the doctor at the nurse's station telling the nurse that Epsom salt will need to be uh, you know, rubbed into the wound, which to me sounds horrific, um, but that's, that's how the story is told. Uh, the grandmother left the hospital, got some Epsom salt and, uh, and performed miracles, and Melba lived. Uh, in fact, uh, Melba became one of the nine high school students that helped to desegregate um, a high school there in Arkansas. Um and when you hear that story, there's some very obvious uh, examples of racism and how racism played a part in in that outcome. But I think about some of the individuals affected by uh, by this story and how it led to practices down the line, right? So Melville was born in 1941 we're not talking about something that happened two or three hundred years ago 1941 for me it's it's near and dear to me because my mom was born five years later so I feel like if my mom was in this country uh, when she gave birth to me when she was born um, then she this could have been her story um, and if this was my mom's birth story I imagine that her story and her experiences would affect the way she raised me it would affect how. I viewed health professionals, white health professionals, um, because obviously in that birth situation, her life was not valued. She was not valued as a human being, uh, definitely seen as less important and of course, less valuable, but, although we can recognize the overt examples of uh, racism when it comes to maybe the nurses that refuse to come check on them uh, or the doctors that refuse to use any pain medication, uh, to me, the damage that's even worse is the one where if there was a physician there catching a baby who had maybe um, a resident training under him, uh, what did he just pass on to that generation? And I think about things like the nurse uh, and anyone uh, who went home uh, with this story, what did their dinner table sound like? Did they say things like, you're not gonna believe what happened today. We had this black patient and you know, they didn't say that they use different terms, I'm sure. But we had this black patient coming and can you believe it? And then have the nerves to ask for more stuff as if that wasn't bad enough. I don't even know if I can continue to work there and all of those conversations, but really, I zoom in when I think about this. I zoom in to the children that sat at those tables and absorb those words and how things were normalized. And when we're talking about bias, that's where you start. You talk about how certain ideals were normalized because those children who sat at those tables, they are now judges and bus drivers and store owners and stay at home parents, and they 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 exist in the world with a certain way of thinking, and uh, and and so when you when you're talking about how bias plays a part. Uh, For me as a birth worker, I think about my white clients and my black clients and about the things that come back to me. I think about the fact that when I have a black mom who is laboring and I leave the hospital, I know that she's more likely to be offered formula even if the problem or any kind of hiccup that she has is something uh, that is, uh, that that can be addressed. Uh, and that's totally what ends up happening to the point where now I just let them know. I just let my clients know. So listen, just be prepared. If there are any issues, um, you already have this, you know, you, we, we've talked about breastfeeding, you've been educated on this, you have postpartum support. And I, I feel like, with the examples that I just described, it's almost more dangerous because it's more, it's it's more difficult to detect. Like we all have biases, I have biases, but we're talking about biases that are causing, you know, lives to not make it. We're talking about, li- we're talking about biases that are killing babies and women. Uh, and so we have to be willing to look at the whole picture. We have to be willing to recognize that there are some ideas that were seeds were planted a really long time ago and, and it influences the decisions we make as teachers and as store owners and as uber drivers and as nurses and as doctors and we have to be willing to pause and and admit to some of that not that we are overtly and intentionally and maliciously trying to hurt people but that okay well you know you have to be willing to do some self-reflection to have an appreciation for like okay when this group of people come in, am I more likely to go the extra mile? Do I already have in my mind the fact that, well, you know, they're probably dot, dot, dot. We know that Black women who give birth, they're more likely to have their babies drug tested without their permission uh, and without their, without, their, uh, without their knowledge. Because of course, the assumption is that, well, we know that statistically speaking, she's Black, so she's more likely to have you know, drugs in her system. So you almost justify it in your head. Um, but, uh, but of course, there's that's all the way wrong. Uh, so yeah, that's kind of a, a long response that really just uses a story to paint a picture. And my hope is that when people hear that story, they figure out like where they fit, you know, were you somebody that was sitting at a table like that? Were you somebody that, you know, was at a hospital observing something like that? Did you say something? Uh, Did you drink the Kool-Aid and believe the things that were being said? Uh, And that I believe is why we are where we are to a big degree.
0: I'm really glad that you shared that story, Farah, because it is so powerful. Um, It's really easy for us to think back and say, well, Melba's story would not happen that way today. And and while that may very well be true, it's so important for us to think through exactly what you've said about all of the far-reaching effects and how that continues to affect generations to come. And what our own personal responsibilities are in that story to really pause and reflect where those biases come from and and what our role is in either furthering or ending systemic racism where we see it happening so i'm I'm, thank you for sharing that i think it is such a powerful example and reminder So as For the Village focuses on training and supporting Black women as lactation professionals, as childbirth educators, and doulas, how do you hope and how do you already see how the organization is making a difference for Black families in our community?
1: Yeah. So our organization is still fairly new um, as a formal 501c3 nonprofit. Uh, And what we do annually, and this is our second round that we just completed, we have an open application process and we select five black women uh, who are committed to our mission uh, and then we train them. We train them, they have over um, 60, I mean, they really have over 70 hours of training uh, where we train them to become certified as doulas, childbirth educators, lactation professionals, like you listed. Um, And and then we uh, partner them with families within the Black community. All of that, again, in response to what research tells us about these interventions. Um, And then our birth workers, they are part of a cohort. So they stay with us in that role as a birth worker for three years. Um, And my my vision with them being with us for three years is so that it's not just, yeah, we're a a nonprofit that trains black people and connects them to other black people and who's the next round of people. We wanna really pour into them. We wanna hear back from them. We want them to connect with each other as birth workers. uh, So we have regular um, check-ins with them. They are part of a black collective, a black birth collective. So as such, they have each other to be like, hey, you know, I had this I had this client at the hospital and this is what happened. And I think I did detect, you know, some unfairness and what is some advice? And like, they, they're just they have each other to collaborate with. Um, so it's a really beautiful thing to have seen. And we've just interviewed our second round um, of, of applicants. And we're in the process of finalizing uh, who our next cohort will be. Um, but what I have found thus far has been um, passion in these birth workers. Uh, Birth work is very emotional work and there are lots of uh, very interesting, but usually very personal reasons why a person wants to pursue becoming a doula uh, or even a lactation professional. Uh, a lot of times it's because they had an incredible birth and they wanna make sure that they help other moms experience that too. Or maybe they had a very traumatic birth and they want to make sure that nobody uh, experiences that as much as they can control that. So there are different avenues that, that these women um, go to, uh, to get to us. And so far, what I'm finding that I'm really, really loving is the connections that the birth workers are forming with each other. Uh, We've had one birth worker who's pregnant, and uh, another one of the birth workers is, is, you know, going to be a doula, her doula. And we have another birth worker who's getting married, like everybody's going to the wedding. It's just, there, there's, been, there's this closeness that exists, uh, or if one birth worker has a birth, she knows she can call on the other birth workers for advice. Uh, that's a really beautiful thing. Uh, I feel like it's a really beautiful foundation that the birth workers have with each other as they exit and they start serving the community, Um, as opposed to, again, just kind of training people and sending them off and not having a way for the birth workers to to have a relationship with each other. So that's where we are right now uh, with that. And and I'm very excited to see how that's growing.
0: What is the process like for you personally to watch these women that you train and lead really succeed to form those communities? And then how can we as the community, individuals or businesses help
1: support for the village? Yeah, for me, it's very humbling. Um, Some of these birth workers, um, they may come with less experience than, than I have as a birth worker, but I see them, I some of them I've told them, like, I could see you getting to the point where I'm calling you for advice. Like, that's just, you know, that's, That's just how I see how you carry yourself and how you do the work. Or when we have certain events, um, our our birth workers are part of um, of at least one of our committees. And so they'll show up. If you see an event that we're hosting or that we're participating in, you'll probably see at least one of our birth workers um, setting up the tables and speaking to other individuals about the work that we do. So for me, it's humbling and it's, it's, it's kind of emotional because you're seeing this vision that you had in your head and that you've shared with so many people and you kind of, you know, you did, you did the work to create this and you're starting to see how it's affecting people and how those people are affecting other people. Uh, for individuals who want to connect with us, um, I encourage them to. Uh, they can go on our website on uh, village inc. Um, dot org. Uh, so I N and C for Inc. for Incorporated. Dot org, and you can. Um, you can make donations there. Um, Our birth workers do not pay for their training. So all of the funds, um, we expect a lot from them in terms of time with training. Um, They're not compensated for their training time, but they are compensated for the times that they are serving the clients that we partner them with. And the families that they're serving, they're not coming out of pocket either. So we're paying to train our birth workers, and then we're paying to compensate them for the services that they're providing. Um, And uh, and so we encourage individuals, if businesses want to help sponsor a family, we'd love for you to to partner with us. If businesses wanna help sponsor the the cost of training um, a birth worker, which is about $1,500, we encourage you to connect with us as well. Uh, And we do want to form relationships with the community we want to be able to say that we got support from hospitals grocery stores Dental offices after school programs for the village, you know, although we're training black women to serve black women. um, We're also a village existing within other villages and we want the opportunity to have different businesses support us um, because the work that we do affects them too, and some whether whether it's directly or indirectly so um, so we welcome businesses partnering with us uh, to support us.
0: Your work to create a healthier community to improve healthcare outcomes for Black moms and babies absolutely impacts all of us. And I think that's a really important thing to note for anybody that's interested in supporting the work you're doing. When we improve those healthcare outcomes, we improve healthcare outcomes for everyone as well.
1: Yes, yeah. yeah, I agree.
0: So let's talk mom life. You have a demanding career without set hours because babies are going to be born whenever babies are going to be born yes and we've talked previously about that inevitable mom guilt that creeps in Um, for all of us and you have some incredible affirmations on that topic how do you deal with mom guilt and how do you encourage other moms
1: yeah So, gosh, one of the things that I love about working with birthing families is I just I get to see them while they're pregnant. I get to see them as they're planning for their birth and I get to see them postpartum and um, and I I get to see how the thinking like how how there's so many different um, things we all have in common when it comes to being a parent, um, particularly being a mom. Um, I believe that guilt is a part of the job of being a parent. And although that sounds like a very negative thing, to me, it comes from a beautiful place. I believe that parents are designed and they're just wired to be on this uh, non-ending quest to, to find the right decision when it comes to raising their child. So do we choose purple walls or green walls? Do we choose this daycare or that one? Do I go back to work or do I stay home with them? Do we get them this car seat or that one? I feel like we spend our time and our lives sort of caring about every decision that we make. And sometimes we feel guilty whether we chose option A or option B. And again, it's because you just love so hard and so much. And so it comes from a beautiful place. Uh, But at the same time, it is important for you to be well surrounded with individuals that are gonna remind you uh, not to be too hard on yourself, to, to kind of have grace on yourself because I don't believe that parents are going to reach that place of like, that's it. I've made all the perfect decisions we have reached a state of perfection. And I've, you know, we don't reach it because we're constantly, as our child is evolving, we want to find out what do we do now? Like, what is the decision, the decision now? And as an observer of this, uh, working with so many pregnant persons, it's a beautiful thing to observe. Uh, when a mom talks about her baby who is sick, one of the things that kind of tickles me or reminds me, I guess, of Just how much she loves that baby. And she will give you details like, okay, well, he woke up at seven o'clock and his temperature was 101.3. Oh no, it was 101.4. And then at six, and I'm thinking like, who else memorizes details about your life, right? Only a parent. And so to me, again, as an observer, it, it, I think it comes from a beautiful place and it helps me too. It helps me to remember that, okay, Farah, don't be too hard on yourself and that, you know, uh, you know where your heart is when it comes to your children you know that you love them hard and that you would do whatever for them uh, and so again that's that's how I describe guilt to, or guilt to parents and how it's a very normal thing um, but it can also spiral uh, and so it's it's important to to have the right mental support so that you you give yourself grace
0: I love that. I feel like that is the best explanation of parent guilt I have ever heard. And I, since our first conversation have played that back to myself many times. So thank you for sharing that. I the whole every mom, every parent in the world needs to hear that. So I'm glad you talked through that with us.
1: Gosh, well, thank you for that. Mm.
0: So as a mom and in your career, both you are constantly serving others and thinking about others needs first. How do you take a step back to care for yourself and what advice do you have for other parents?
1: Yeah, um, gosh, I just, I feel very fortunate to have been able to to grow my business and to start a nonprofit and my children very much know uh, what it is that I do and what I'm about. And I just adore that. I, I love that they bring up things to me that have to do with what I with what uh, I do because it, it makes me feel like they get me, they understand me. Um, but at the same time, I definitely want, don't want to send the message to them that uh, the work that I do is more important than them. Uh, so I set boundaries and I've learned to set boundaries so that I feel good about, uh, about the time that is allotted to, uh, to my clients, but then also the time that's allotted to my kids, especially since I work on call. And our household recognizes that I can, you know, I can be gone at, you know, like in an hour and 30 minutes type of thing. And to see how they have, um, to see how they have shifted. And, you know, sometimes they'll be like, oh, mom, are you on call today? And cause, you know, I want to go to dot, dot, dot and all. So I feel like that has become more normal for them. Uh, and and whereas, uh, honestly, when I was a, a fresh uh, doula, Um, I did have a lot of guilt about like, I'm going to be gone, like I'm just leaving and I could be gone for five hours or I can be gone for like 22 hours like, you know what am I communicating to my kids that, you know that they're not as important and all of that, so I did struggle with that at first, Um, but then uh, again talking to them about what it is that I do and why I do it, uh, especially with our nonprofit. When we have an event, if you see me at a For the Village event, you'll probably see at least one of my kids with me um, because I want them to see what I'm doing and what this is about. This Essentially, this is for them. This is you know, for future generations as well. And so I feel confident about what I'm doing and, and why I'm doing it and communicating that to them um, uh, while setting boundaries so that, you know, there are certain days of the week that if I'm not called to a birth, I don't work on Sundays and they know that. And, uh, and, uh, when my, when I started as a lactation, uh, counselor, my kids, um, we were watching a documentary. Because in our household, you're supposed to alternate between watching a movie and watching documentaries. My husband likes documentaries. And so we kind of all roll our eyes, but then watch it and enjoy it. Uh, And so it was like a documentary night. And my son, who was was probably around nine at the time, he was like, oh, we want to watch Babes Behind Bars. And I was like, dude, what? What are you guys talking about? And we're looking at it on netflix and it was this documentary about these women who are incarcerated and who were pregnant and who were part of a program where you could uh essentially raise your child in prison in this particular um, sector and like all the kids wanted to watch it so we watched it and i thought and it was it was really interesting and at the end of the documentary my son who again was nine at the time he was like hey mom would you be interested in doing something like that? Like um, like teaching breastfeeding to women, like in prison, like maybe not going every week, but maybe once a month. And it totally brought tears to my eyes. I was like, oh my gosh, he like totally gets me. And I was like, yeah, son, I would love to do that. Like I just, to me, that was a really powerful moment. Cause it was, I felt like we have now normalized this. Like they understand what I'm doing and why I'm doing it, and it's part of conversations, uh, and so I thought that was really cool. I thought that that was it. It really helped with again that mom guilt where I'm like, they're gonna think that because I'm not here, I don't want to be here, uh, and and I feel confident about I feel confident about what my goals are and what my aspirations are, and just kind of trying to check in with them, make sure that they're doing okay.
0: I love that so much. I love that you are watching them really understand who you are and why you do the work you do. And you're so right that just explaining our kind of our own why to our kids helps them be more empathetic and understanding when maybe we do have a busier work schedule um, or we have to put off something that we had planned on doing with them. And they understand, um, that time with them is more important, just as important, and that they'll get that back too. Yeah.
1: Yes. Agreed. That's beautiful.
0: Okay, Farah, I like to end on a very hopeful note. So tell us, what are you most looking forward to this year and what's making you feel hopeful?
1: Yeah. So this year, um, I kind of, I came up with this little acronym uh, at the end of, uh, I guess, probably on January 1st, January 2nd, as I'm thinking about where I want to go uh, this year. And it's not really an acronym, it's just three words, um, focus, forgiveness, and gratitude. Um, for me, just really focusing, uh, I am I am a Christ believer. So I do feel like my faith helps to ground me. Uh, and when you have your own business, uh, it is very uh, it's very empowering, but it's also you also have to have some great mentors because you're everything like your customer service, your like uh, marketing, you are social media, you are all the things, and you want to stay focused on like well what is my goal right now? Um, if somebody is unhappy, you know. Is that going to make me feel self conscious or is this a learning opportunity for me? If somebody is, you know, singing our praises and accolades, is that going to make my head big or am I, you know, am I supposed to take that as encouragement and keep moving forward? So I feel like focus to me this year will help me with, again, setting the right boundaries and prioritizing properly. And forgiveness is uh, especially a lot of self-forgiveness uh, because although I talk a lot about guilt and you know, working on guilt, it's still something where you know, I do feel like I can be really hard on myself and that can spiral. So really learning to forgive myself and anybody else who too I might be in a season of kind of like, uh, feeling like I need to, to be more open minded uh, and find different ways of looking at things. Uh, Self forgiveness, that was a big one for me. So that's another area. And gratitude. I am so internally grateful for so many people. I mean, like so many people. So, you know, it could be like our male person, uh, my kid's teacher, the people I work with, um, my, my spouse, my kids. And I, I'm in a place where I'm like, I just wanna, I just want them all to know how grateful I am. Or even with this nonprofit, what it takes to create and develop a nonprofit and your volunteers and our birth workers and their flexibility. I am so immensely grateful. Uh, and I just wanna make sure that I'm being intentional about expressing that gratitude and not just being like, oh wow, we're so lucky, we're so blessed. Uh, So those are the three areas that I'm I'm looking forward to working on this year.
0: That is an inspiration for me, too. I'm going to write all of those down (laughs) and reflect on those myself. That's so helpful and such good reminders for all of us as parents to think about as we head into this new year. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you so much for joining me today, Farah, and for all the incredibly important and impactful work you are doing in our community. For our listeners, you can learn more about For the Village at forthevillageinc.org. And for all of our listeners with babies ages 0 to 24 months, you can check out Metro Family's new Cutest Baby Photo Contest for a chance to see your little one featured in the magazine and on social media. You can enter at metrofamilymagazine.com. Thanks, everyone, for listening. Join us next time on Raising OKC Kids.